Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 33, Where Did the Israelites Come From? In this podcast, we have, at times, looked at the sources of the Israelite people, particularly where their stories come from, like the Exodus or the walls of Jericho. But now we're examining their first appearance in history, because as we know, they'll play a large role in shaping the history of the land of Israel. The first explicit reference to the name Israel appears in the Merneptah steel, which was drafted sometime during the reign of Merneptah, the pharaoh who reigned from 1213 to 1203 BCE. And it really is the usual bragging we're used to hearing from Egyptian kings. Uh, here's how it goes. The princes are prostrate, saying, Peace. Not one raises his head among the nine boughs. Desolation is for Chenu. Hati is pacified. Plundered is the Canaan with every evil. Carried off is Aqualuni. Seized upon is Gezer. Yanoam is made non-existent. Israel is laid to waste. Its seed is no more. Karu has become a widow because of Egypt. All lands together are pacified. Everyone restless has been bound. End quote. So what does that mean exactly? Some scholars believe that Israel here refers to an area, possibly the Jezreel Valley. Alstrom and Edelman have suggested that Israel here is separated from Canaan geographically. Canaan represents the coastal lowlands, while Israel is the highlands. But that's probably not the case. Most Egyptologists say that from the context, it's clear that Israel here refers to a people. Furthermore, the term seed is important here, as in seed is no more. That's often associated with agriculture. I mean, sure, the obvious interpretation is that the people of Israel will have no children. And that's undoubtedly what the stele means. But it could be referring to Israel as local farmers. There's a duality in how Egyptians use that term and how Middle Easterners use that term to tell progeny and agricultural seed at the same time. That duality may or may not be intentional here. Either way, if we accept that this refers to the people of Israel, that means that by the reign of Merneptah, they existed and they were well known enough to be cited by the scribes of the Pharaoh. That's a pretty big deal, especially when we take into consideration that the area that they were likely from, Shechem and its environs, was usually ignored by Egypt. Indeed, a letter written around 1213 BCE warns of brigands and cattle thieves everywhere. It was not a nice neighborhood, and civilized Egyptians kept out of there at all costs. Generally, the Egyptian policy was to make deals with local kings so that they would support a semblance of order there. All that so that no one would endanger the precious trade routes that the Egyptians held so dear. So, the Israel people must have been a threat significant enough to require elimination and respectable enough to be included in the stele. And the timing of this first mention is also interesting. This is the latter part of the Late Bronze Age. That means we're close to the Iron Age, which was the biblical era in our region. But the roots of the Israelites are to be found in the Bronze Age, although we don't know precisely when. The Hebrew language may give us some more clues, although not as many as we'd like. 
it's very close to the Canaanite language and pretty unrelated to the Egyptian one. So that would seem to argue against an Egyptian origin, as the Exodus story would have us believe, or at least a partially Egyptian origin. But it's also pretty close to the Semitic languages spoken in Jordan and to a lesser extent in Mesopotamia. So it's not impossible that the Israelites came from the East. So with all this in mind, where did they come from? Short answer is, of course, we don't really know exactly. There's no textual evidence before the Merimptas Steli, or at least there's very little. We'll talk about that later. And until now, we've enjoyed a lot of textual evidence in the form of the Amarna letters. They're such a fabulous treasure trove of a source. But unfortunately, moving forward, we don't have anything quite like it for a long time. Therefore, we must rely on the fragments of other texts that we find and our reliable old friend, archaeology. Now, there are digs in Tel Balata, which are located in what appears to be the ancient biblical town of Shvim. It's today situated in Balata, a suburb on the outskirts of the Palestinian city, which Jews today still call Shem. While the area has been occupied in the distant past, from around 3200 to 1900 BCE, it appears to have been uninhabited. But it was rebuilt around 1900, and the first fortifications found there were built around 1700 BCE. Even before then, there's references of it in the Egyptian execration texts. They refer to the achievements of a general called Ku Sebek, who worked for Sensoret III, a king of the Middle Kingdom, Ira. And the text goes as follows. His incarnation set out northward to overthrow the nomads of Asia. His incarnation reached a district, Chem was its name. His incarnation made a good beginning by proceeding to the abode of life, prosperity, and health. Then Shem fell together with the vile Rejnu. At the time, Rejnu was the Egyptian name for Canaan and Syria. Because the text says that Shem fell together with the vile Rejnu, some scholars believe it was a central Canaanite city of the time. But I don't see why. All the text tells us is that local Canaanites controlled it, not that they were more powerful than anyone else. And I think we sometimes like to assume the importance of cities in the past based on what they would later become. There's certainly a lot of that with Jerusalem. And this may be one of those cases. It especially seems unlikely when we consider the archaeological remains found in the Tel Balata area, which don't seem to show a fortified city, at least not, like I said, for about a century or two. Nonetheless, since Shechem was mentioned in an Egyptian text, it probably had some sort of importance. It may have been a cultural center for the nomadic people of the area, a place where the bonds that linked tribes and their leaders were made. We know that other nomadic centers, like Tel Banat in Syria, existed at that time, so this is quite likely. And over time, Shechem seems to have turned into a city-state. We don't have any texts from the following centuries of the Middle Bronze Age, but the archaeological remains tell a pretty straightforward story. First, walls were built, as we said. That was followed by a large structure known as the Great Court by archaeologists. We're still not entirely sure if the system of the Great Court was a royal palace or a site of cultic activity. I like to think that it was a cultic center, not because I have any evidence, but just because there were six furnace ovens over there. Um, I like the thing to think that 
during festivals, families would go there, cook meals, eat them at communal tables. Something about a Bronze Age family barbecue in Shechem really appeals to me. Either way, the city became increasingly prosperous and powerful as the population grew. But existence in Canaan is tenuous. The town of Shechem was destroyed in a military campaign, quite possibly by the Egyptians, maybe by a rival city-state. We have no way of knowing. It appears that after two serious assaults on the city, it finally fell and was killed, destroyed in 1550 BCE. Um, towards the end, culture in that city was very similar to what we find in the Hyksos dynasty, which we talked about extensively in this podcast, and ruled Egypt from 1638 to 1530 BCE. And since that rule was concurrent with the existence of the Hyksos state in Egypt, some historians have referred to Shechem at this time as the Hyksos city. Thus, the town's destruction may well have been Middle uh, Kingdom Egypt's way of getting even with their enemies. But again, we don't know for sure. After Shechem was destroyed, there were far fewer Canaanite settlements than in the Panas throughout the entire region. And Shechem, of course, became smaller. According to uh, Israel Finkelstein, there was an 85% decrease in the existence and size of settlements. Meanwhile, there's another way we can see a transformation occurring in Canaanite society that shows that there was a move from urban to pastoralist uh, lifestyles that I find pretty fascinating. When archaeologists dig up bones of animals in an area, they always check the proportion of cows, and other agricultural animals versus sheep and goats. It gives you a good indication of how people were living. In the urban period of Shechem, there was about one cow for every four sheep or goats. Cows are, of course, used to plow fields. Meanwhile, goats and sheep have to be moved around to stay alive. So when there's more of those, that means there's more pastoralists. When the city declined, it became one cow for every eight sheep and goats. That implies a dramatic social change. Now, the city of Shechem was rebuilt, and we even talked about Labayu, the king of Shechem, and the things that he did, but it never regained its former glory. Indeed, it probably wasn't even fortified. If it was, fortifications had never been found. Still, the fact that there were fewer people there appears to have been a good thing for some. Houses that did reemerge were bigger because there was more place to stretch out. And then, of course, there was more room for pastoralists to run their flocks. As Finkelstein put it, quote, the availability of green pasture in the dry summer and the fact that the highlands were not densely populated and cultivated even in periods of settlement expansion meant that these regions were ideal for pastoral activity, end quote. These conditions allowed for the society of shepherds that we think of when we imagine the childhood of King David. It appears that the pastoral people who took over the region when the cities got smaller were locals rather than migrants from elsewhere. There's an argument about that, but that's what most of the evidence seems to show. We know that because the cemeteries and cultic sites in the area continued to be used in urban and pastoral periods, and the burial practices remained identical. Meanwhile, the shrines of the time are similar to earlier Canaanite ones found in cities but they were now built in non-urban areas, sometimes quite far away from any city. 
they seem likely to have attractive nomads for festivals at certain times of the year. In these times, the urban settlements were mainly concentrated north of Shigen. Meanwhile, the pastoralist nomads mostly lived to the south of it. And while the north was part of the Shem city-state kingdom that Labayu ruled, the south was a fiercely independent area. But even if the two groups had differences politically and economically, they appeared to have had the same culture. Their burial and shrines were similar, or very often they just used the same spots, and they likely cooperated in creating them in the first place. Indeed, it's probably best to think of people and societies at that time as existing on a continuum between pastoralist and farmer, not as two separate cultures in any meaningful way. Probably the most notable archaeological finding from this area and period is the Tananir complex, found some 300 meters south of Mount Grizim, near Chem. It's built on a square plan, 18 meters per side, with a fair and rectangular room arrangement built around the central room. So, as we said, the complex is 18 meters or 16, 60 feet on each side. And here's how it was described when found in 1968. It's a structure with an 8-meter square central court. Near the altar were tube-like incense burners, similar to those found in Babylonia and Bissan. There were oil lamps, huge pithos vases, and alabastian importations in the chambers. But most impressive of all was the foundation resting in the corner of the foundation wall near the altar carved bronze sword and two spears, end quote. Now, this description is actually very controversial because the archaeologist didn't um, leave the area intact and it was destroyed. So we don't know um, if this is actually what it looked like, but it's very picturesque, so I thought I'd share it. This was an open-air temple, which we know because it was built in a way that could not support a roof. Unfortunately, the temple was destroyed in the Iron Age, but it thrived until then, regardless of the balance between pastoralists and city dwellers. That would suggest it served the entire community, and goes along with the theory that everyone in the area was more or less united in culture. Think of it as how cowboys and city slickers in the Wild West could all go to the same church, and were therefore functionally part of the same culture. When the balance between them changed as the West was tamed, the church provided continuity in a time of change. Well, the same thing happened in Bronze Age Shechem. Even though there were changes, it moved from being more urban to being more pastoralist. The rituals stayed more or less the same. Another element guaranteed cultural continuity there, and its relative isolation from Egyptian influence. Sure, those darn colonialists were everywhere in the country, but they generally avoided the highlands around Shechem because they weren't on trade routes, were not worth the effort, and were very unsafe. Therefore, the region wasn't often mentioned in Egyptian documents. As uh, Redford explained, quote, the woods and predators there made travel risky. Meanwhile, the hill country was inhospitable, holding little attraction for the Egyptians disinclined to police it, end quote. They also didn't have to worry about the area being a political threat because it was sparsely populated and poor, so ignoring it was smart and cost-effective, unless every now and then someone popped up who was too much of a pain in the ass to ignore, like Labayu, who was discussed at length in the Amarna letters. So, 
What that meant is that culture in this region developed relatively independent of Egyptian influence, and even with a certain amount of antagonism towards it, which you can read when you read the Tanakh. All this helps explain what we talked about in the last episode. If you remember, King Labayu of Shechem created coalitions with local Apiru, that is, local nomadic tribes similar to modern Bedouins, to achieve his political goals. While that was undoubtedly socially frowned upon from city elites, it would have been relatively easy to do, considering the cultural ties that bound the city of Shechem with nomadic tribes. So, there's no question that the city-dwelling elites look down on the Apiru, the nomads, and the pastoralists, but that doesn't mean they didn't share the same culture. What was Egypt doing at the time? Well, the 19th dynasty of Egypt appears to have tightened its control, especially over southern Canaan. The number of military bases found there rose from 8 previously to 11, at least the ones that archaeologists have found. Prominence of their client kings in the region also increased. But the fractious politics of the time, as reflected in the Amarna letters, suggest that this was more to do with the chaotic nature of local politics than anything else. It probably wasn't an attempt at full-on colonization as much as it was an attempt to desperately keep order in a place that was getting increasingly manic. You see, Egypt was facing a new threat at that time. Bands of nomads from Libya, which had always been its most quiet border, had begun to attack it, likely because they experienced famine in their homes. That crisis played a role in the decline of the Egyptian New Kingdom. So, they had a lot on their plate. Steely found in modern Beth She'an, a city in the Jezreel Valley, still around today, shows some of the problems Egyptians had with local nomadic tribes coming from Canaan, while they were also dealing with the ones from Libya. The word Egyptians used for nomads then was shasu, based on the Canaanite verb for plundering. First, this term was used to describe plunderers in Edom. Later, it was used for nomads all over the region. Here's what the Steely said, quote, The Folan of the Shasu are plotting rebellion. Their clan leaders are gathered in one place. They have taken to confusion and quarreling. Each is slaying his fellow. They disregard the edicts of the palace. As for the hills of the rebels, none could get past them because of the fallen ones of the Shasu that they had attacked. Now, the Egyptians tried to take the offensive against these bandits. A steely found in Tel-e-Rataba, recounts the invasions into the lands of Moab and Edom in southern Jordan, which they called the land of the Shasu. We are also told that Pharaoh Ramses engaged in a, quote, great massacre in the lands of the Shasu, end quote. These campaigns read to me like policing lawlessness during imperial decline rather than a sign of strength. And keep in mind that starting around 1200 BCE, invasions of the Sea People started. We'll talk more about that in future episodes, but it's as dramatic as it sounds, and it changed the Middle East completely. In a stele written during the time of Ramses II, we first hear of this problem. It says, quote, The unruly Sherden, whom no one had ever known how to combat, they came boldly sailing in their warships from the midst of the sea, none being able to withstand them, end quote. It was the beginning of a series of invasions that would plague the coastal area of the eastern Mediterranean for the next 300 years. A lot of these people would eventually be known as the Philistines. And Egypt was facing other problems. 
By 1184 BCE, Egypt was also dealing with dynastic quarrels that sapped its strength. Between that and the growing threat to its western borders, eastern borders, sea people invading from everywhere, Egypt wasn't what it used to be. According to Morris, quote, Prices experienced wild fluctuations. State-funded laborers struck for lack of payment. Royal tombs were robbed. Officials were fired on corruption charges. And even a harem conspiracy almost led to the murder of Ramses himself. End quote. Anyway, this is the world in which the Israelites emerged. One where Egypt was still the most potent power, but it was increasingly challenged from all sides while experiencing some severe internal issues. I mean, when the harem is trying to kill you, things are bad. We already discussed how the Canaanite city-states had become smaller and poorer, and that had serious consequences for nomads and pastoralists. When urban centers were big and rich, they could trade their wares with urban folk in exchange for grain. But as that market weakened, it became more difficult. So nomads had more incentive to grow wheat themselves. Once you do that, Maybe you grow some olives, too. You still want to herd your goats, so you might send one of your sons to do it. You build in a location close to both, and pretty soon, you ain't a nomad no more. You're some kind of hybrid. And we start to see that on a macro level, around 1200 BCE. Villages with unique characteristics emerged at the top of the hills around Shem, or in Samaria, and to a lesser extent in Judea or on steep ridges. They had four-room houses, hollered rim jars, and a general absence of pig bones, which we'll get back to. These villages were surrounded by natural forests made primarily of oak trees. They sound very picturesque, and they were almost always self-sufficient. They had nearby springs and lands for pasture, and it was easy enough to find resources because these villages were tiny maybe an acre in size, with a population of about a hundred, typically split between adults and children. The Tanakh tells us that the early Israelites were constantly at war with the Canaanites, but there's really no sign of that in these small villages. No fortifications, no weapons of any kind. Seems their lives were pretty tranquil. The villages were simple and consisted only of houses. Indeed, small houses that contained a nuclear family and a nuclear family alone. They had no monuments or public buildings. They were far less elaborate than the bigger Canaanite cities. The women seemed to have had no fancy jewelry, and there's no evidence anyone there knew how to write. The most disappointing thing is that we find no evidence of ritual or religion. Burials were simple. There are no shrines, nothing, but the lack of remains of pigs is a massive caveat. It's highly significant because their neighbors all ate pigs regularly. It was a normal part of the diet. Um, there are similar villages to the early Israelite ones in Jordan, but there are pig remains in all of them. The towns in these highlands of what today is the West Bank do not. That's our only indication they had a unique identity that's tied to the Israelite one, but it's a very strong and important one. Why weren't they eating pork? Was it to do with the worship of the God of the Israelites? Well, we can't know for sure because we have no written records and we can't ask them, and there are no fines. Quite possibly, yes. You see, the first time Israel was mentioned was in 1207 BCE. But well before that, the God Yahweh, the one who appears in the Tanakh, first appeared in a text. 
Two topographical Egyptian lists, one found in Solib and the second at Amara West, mention the land of Shasu in Edom, with a familiar name associated with it. Those lists were produced in the 14th century BCE, and according to the list, an area of Edom is known as the land of the Shasu of Yahweh. The name of the Israelite god is spelled the same as it would be later, and it does seem to refer to the area's religion. If so, this gives us some idea of who is worshipping this god and where. But sure, it could just mean the land of the nomads who live in the area of Yahweh, um, but there's no area known to have that name, and there is later a god with that name, so it seems a lot more likely that we're talking about a god rather than a place. So they may have already been worshipping the Israelite god. We can't know for sure because, as we said, there was no religious clergy there, no public buildings, no government, no trade. There was no social stratification as well because there was no writing. Um, and everyone was a pastoralist. So everyone lived about the same. There's no real differences between the houses. And there's no clear delineation of elites according to material wealth. And usually, the spirituality in the organized religion sense is linked to elites. They become elites uh, because religion is a source of money and power. So we really don't know exactly what these people believed in when the villages were first created. But what we do know for sure is that they lasted well into the biblical area. And those same villages were part of Israelite society once it existed. And they continued not to eat pork, which shows continuity. So it's very reasonable to say that these are the first known Israelites living in these small, picturesque, self-sustained villages in the mountains of Samaria and Judea. So this is the summary of the archaeological evidence we have of the Israelites. But all that amounts to are fragments of facts, and they can be interpreted in different ways. Since we don't know exactly how the Israelites emerged, all we have are theories. Now, we do have an account of how the Israelites arrived in Canaan uh, that's provided to us with the book of Joshua. We already talked about this story in episode 8 when discussing the walls of Jericho. In short, according to the book of Joshua, after the exodus from Egypt, Joshua ben Nun led the people into the land where they fought the Canaanites and defeated them with divine help to inherit the land as promised by God. According to the book of Joshua, this conquest occurred in seven years. But of course, this narrative has some serious problems. How did all these highly fortified cities fall to a group of nomads so quickly, especially a group of nomads unable to find their way through Sinai in less than 40 years? Remember how difficult it was for the army of Thutmose III to conquer fortified walls? They often stood outside helpless. Worse yet, many of the cities in the stories did not suffer destruction at that time, or in the case of Jericho, they were already destroyed when this supposedly happened. The story in Joshua also tells us how much, the, how much the Canaanites were killed and destroyed, though they continued to appear in the Tanakh and existed in reality much, much later. It also talks about the vision of the land with the Philistines, though they did not exist yet. So problems abound with the story. Therefore, naturally, there have been several theories uh, based on archaeological evidence and sometimes just 
rampant speculation to figure out where the Israelites actually came from, considering all the contradictions in the book of Joshua. So one theory, um, the earliest one, came from an attempt to sort of harmonize the biblical narrative with archaeological evidence. Since the story of the Exodus and the story of Joshua talks about an exodus from Egypt as the source from which uh, the Israelites came, naturally, many believe the Israelites entered the land from the outside and then conquered it. Um, according to the biblical account, the people Joshua led had roots in the land as Abraham had brought bought land there and lived there along with his sons until their descendants left during a famine. That led to their enslavement by Egypt and so on. So William F. Albright, the archaeologist who authenticated the Dead Sea Scrolls, believed the evidence generally confirmed the story in the book of Joshua. But because there's no evidence of the Israelites existing earlier, he doubted they came into the land as a cohesive entity. He explained, quote, it is severe error of method to assume the Israelites that immediately preceded the conquest were a homogenous body, illustrating a fixed character. One of these groups probably fled from Egypt, and that is where the Exodus story derives from. But because many of the Israelite traditions appeared to come from Babylon, he believed it was an ingathering of tribes from various locations. He also thought tribes from the Negev were part of this group that united in Canaan. What gave them a separate identity were the teachings of Moses, which Albright believed were historical. Over time, Albright believes that these outsiders united with the Apiru, who we discussed in a previous episode. He looks at the Amarna letters as evidence that the Canaanites and Apiru were hostile towards each other, and believes the nomads joined forces with the Israelites, possibly convinced by their religious message. Because many in this group came from outside of Canaan and had different religious affiliations from the locals, they viewed the Canaanites as an outside group and fought them. That is why, according to this theory, there was warfare between them, as described in the book of Joshua. They conquered a few cities, starting with Beth-el, which does show some signs of destruction. They then destroyed Lachish, which was an important city in 1230 BCE or so. Of course, notice that Jericho is not mentioned, because even Albright, who's sympathetic to the story in the book of Joshua, and generally believes that it's true, knows that the archaeological evidence clearly shows it was destroyed centuries earlier. According to Albright, the impressive show of military force by the Israelites against the Canaanites attracted the attention of the Egyptians. That's why we see Israel mentioned in the Merneptah steel. The military victories of Israel plus its appealing religious approach, so the Israelites eventually replace the Canaanites as the dominant population. Albright described this population as known for its, quote, nomadic simplicity and purity of life, its lofty monotheism, and its severe code of ethics. So we see the early Israelites under Albright portrayed as nomads within an egalitarian society, uh, already a fully developed code of ethics inherited from Moses. It won't surprise you to hear that over time, theories of the formulation of an Israelite identity moved away from the biblical text. Joshua Ault and Martin Knopf had theories that started to move away from them. They also believe the Exodus and Joshua narratives provided a background with some truth. 
In other words, nomads from Egypt and Babylon came to Canaan with a different culture and religious outlook. But that's where the similarities with Albright end. They looked at the archaeological evidence and the picture painted by the Amarna letters and saw no reason to believe there had been a severe dislocation or destruction in Canaan during the emergence of the Israelites. Whatever evidence Albright based his theories on, they see as the result of the invasion of the Sea Peoples or internal warfare described in the Amarna letters. So the destruction wasn't coming from war between the Israelites and the Canaanites to them. Instead, they saw continuity in the political structures of the time. Hatzor was the considerable Canaanite power in the north and remained in that position even as Canaanite culture started to decline. Meanwhile, the center was dominated by Shechem and the lower highlands by Jerusalem. So as Noth explained, quote, the Israelite tribes did not acquire their territory through warlike conquest and the destruction of Canaanite cities, but rather they settled in previously unoccupied or in settlements that they founded, end quote. Because all these entities were weak, the Canaanite cities, they proved, according to Alt, to be, quote, least capable of resisting the advance of the Israelites and offered them the best opportunity of settling down and gradually turning from their nomadic ways of life to agricultural economy, end quote. So, according to them, three different confederations of tribes with similar pre-Israelite cultures took over. The Galilee tribes influenced Chatzol, the Rachel tribes did the same in Shechem, and the Judahite tribes in Jerusalem. Since these tribes were all somewhat different, they did not have a cohesive identity yet, but that would emerge later. In other words, to them, to Alton North, Canaanite culture and political power had been hit by Egyptian, Hittite, and Mitanni expansion, and if that wasn't enough, then came the freaking sea people. So Egypt was weak and lacked in confidence. And Canaanites were weak and lacked in confidence as well. So the Israelite culture subsumed them and didn't have any resistance from the Egyptian colonial forces either. The process wasn't entirely peaceful, according to them. The pre-Israelite Apiru teamed up with the lower-class Canaanite residents of the cities to overthrow the local pro-Egyptian exploitative elite, at least in certain points. And you see there's a sort of class system element here. And this is a fascinating part of both of these schools of thought. They see the nomadic tribes that would become the Israelites as more egalitarian and fair. And of course, the early settlements of the Israelites do bear this out. This is likely based on our vision of nomadic people also as less interested in property, but also because of the moral tone of the Tanakh that we take at face value. If they were preaching these values, they were living by them, therefore the early Israelites were more egalitarian and fair. Meanwhile, the Canaanites are portrayed as an exploitative and feudal society. That, according to Noth and Old, was their downfall. I have to say there's something very Marxist about this analysis, which is anachronistic, but that doesn't automatically mean that it's incorrect, just because the analysis of societies according to class is relatively new doesn't mean that it didn't apply to ancient societies as well. So in this theory, the Israelite religion was a nomadic religion that eventually took over the urban Canaanite areas. So the people who would become the Israelites were a combination of urban Canaanites, disenfranchised urban Canaanites, I should say, and tribal Apiru. While these theories competed, 
they have much in common, at least in retrospect. They both see the people who became the Israelites as outsiders. In addition, they stress a combination of violent and peaceful means of spreading religion and culture. And one other thing these theories had in common is they stressed the difference between Canaanite culture and Israelite culture. But starting in the 60s, new theories evolved stressing the role of Canaanites in the development of Israelite culture. Mendenhall believed that early Israelites were indeed a group of outsiders who had escaped from Egypt, but their influence was mostly ideational. The vast majority of Israelites to him were Canaanites influenced by those ideas from the outside. He argued that one of the main reasons for the misperception was a misunderstanding of the lifestyle of nomads at the time. In later periods, Bedouins traveled in large groups over considerable distances, but they are aided by the domestication of the camel, which had yet to occur at this time. So nomads did not travel in large enough groups over considerable distances to demographically transform entire populations, but they did travel in large enough groups to spread ideas. So, to Mendenhall, the Apiru were not separate from Canaanite culture. Instead, they were part of it, locals with a different lifestyle. This approach was developed further by others, who, like Mendenhall, saw the Apiru who became the Israelites as the urban refugees, malcontents, and social dropouts of Canaanite urban societies. These ideological and religious practices that came from outside influenced them and became the Israelite traditions. People behind this school of thought argue that these social circumstances led to a more egalitarian bend in Israeli society because they were, quote-unquote, the dropouts or dregs of Canaanite society. But to later scholars like Israel Finkelstein, the transformation that occurred in the late Bronze Age and early Iron Age was utterly local. The history of the Bronze Age in Canaan is full of ebbs and flows of urban settlement. And the one that occurred at this time, Finkelstein argues, is no different. Instead, our perception of the biblical stories makes the changes occurring in this society seem foreign and more loaded with religious meaning. Later in the Bronze Age, there was a gradual shift to more passive forms of social organization as Canaanite city climbed. This could happen because your city was taken and razed to the ground, or a local water source ran out. As the urban centers weakened, the storalist society became more muscular and splintered from urban culture and religion. The new society, relatively independent from the cities, became the first Israelites. As support for this theory, Finkelstein cites the structure of proto-Israelite settlements like the one in Tel Beersheba. There we can see an elliptical arrangement of the structures in a way that shapes an inner courtyard. This is similar to how nomads organize their tents, and reflects a very gradual transition from one lifestyle to another. Indeed, the earliest found Israelite-type settlement in Izbet Sarta was built almost exactly like a traditional Bedouin encampment. These first settlements were often built close to the desert or good pastoral areas, and not in optimal locations for farming. Over time, they moved to good farming areas, which indicates a change in priorities from the nomadic lifestyle to the passive one. Another sign is the cultic structures that were located far away from any urban center. Their permanence is also a sign of that change. But 
because some of these cultic structures were used by urban as well as nomadic and nomadic tribes in the transformation of becoming sedentary, that shows that they may have come, or probably did come, from the same culture. Now, I've looked at quite a bit of evidence, and I strongly lean towards the belief that the Israelites are a Canaanite offshoot rather than primarily the product of a foreign culture, although foreign influence was definitely part of the story here. The two things that convince me are the strong influence of Canaanite mythology on the Tanakh and the lack of a clear break in culture between the late Bronze and the early Iron Age in the heartlands surrounding Shechem and Jerusalem. There's no real evidence that a new culture arrived. It's just that part of the culture evolved differently. We can see that the settlements were almost identical for the Israelites, but they practiced things a little bit differently, like the lack of pig remains. The fact that we cannot really delineate when the Israelites began and where the Canaanites stopped is very revealing. To me, it shows that one arose from the other. The Israelites are part of the Canaanite family tree. That may sound surprising to some modern observers, but remember that the term Canaanite is a very loose description of a large set of cultures that arose in the land over thousands of years. They weren't a particularly united or cohesive ethnic group. Indeed, you could argue it was more of a geographical designation than an ethnic one. So, in some ways, it's almost unavoidable the Israelites would be Canaanites, because it doesn't mean anything that specific. Then, we also have that cryptic reference to the land of Yahweh in the topographical lists. I tend to believe that refers to the future Israelite god. One reason for that is that there's no geographical site of that name, and there is a god of that name. And assuming that is true, and I believe it is, that means Yahweh was worshipped in Jordan, which would indicate where at least one of the original Israelite tribes came from. And more than that, it gives us an idea of why some elements in the story of Exodus occur in Jordan. In the book of Deuteronomy, the location of Mount Sinai is said to be in Seir, which is another name for Edom. Therefore, it is likely where those parts of the story originate from. And the kingdoms in Edom, the people who lived in Edom, were, for all intents and purposes, part of Canaanite culture. There was no border between Edom and Shechem. And as we saw in the case of the kingdom of Labayu, they were sometimes even ruled by the same people. And here's another interesting fact. The Shasu, or at least groups of Egyptians called by that name, moved everywhere and even reached Egypt. They appeared in Suez to terrorize the locals one year, and the next they could raid Bet-Shehan. These folks got around, and they terrified the Egyptians, and that could explain why Egypt, which must have seemed like a unique and exotic land to them, became part of the mythology. That could explain the exodus from Egypt. The Shasu were nomads. They knew Egypt. They got to Egypt. Meanwhile, their presence everywhere as a threat etched them into the Egyptian mind, as mentioned in several sources, most spectacularly in the Merneptah steel. Donald Redford, the great Egyptologist, links this back to the Merneptah steel. Quote, In the 60 years between 1320 and 1260 BCE, the Shasu are chronicled as continuing to foment trouble in their native habitat of the Steppe, and pressing westward through the Negev toward the major towns along the Via Maris. In my opinion, it is not an unrelated phenomenon that a generation later, under Merneptah, an entity called Israel, with all the characteristics of the Shasu enclave, makes its appearance. 
End quote. The Israelites were a poor and small group compared to the Canaanites, and were unlikely to have caused their downfall. Instead, they seemed to have benefited from it, and also from the downfall of Egyptian control in the land of Israel, just as their enemies, the Philistines, would, who we'll talk about in the next episode. Anyway, that's just my opinion. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot going for each of these opinions. Either way, these theories are fascinating. One may be more correct than another, but they share some elements. They tie the rise of the Israelite religion to the habits and culture of the Apiru nomads in Canaan. They see the religion and culture that arose as the product of a more egalitarian culture created in opposition to the stratified and exploitative traditional elites from Canaan. So they all see Israelites as nomadic outsiders. They differ on where they came from. No matter how the Israelites came into being, we are talking about a process of identity formation. Modern sociologists believe that identities form around two phenomena. First, a shared myth of the past. We know quite a bit about these myths from the stories of Abraham and Moses, the two fathers of the Israelites. And although the form we have them in was written much later, many of these stories were probably already told at the time. And the second part of identity formation is having a common enemy. At first, that may have been the Egyptians. The arrival of the Sea Peoples around this time, just when the Israelite identity was being created, is likely no coincidence. The Philistines, the people they became, have gone down in the biblical narrative as the main enemy of the Israelites. And that name even haunts the descendants of the Israelites to this day. That may be a reflection of the role these invaders played in shaping their early identity. And we'll start talking about that in the next episode. And with that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but only if you're going to give us five stars. Otherwise, send me an angry email or a nice one or questions at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and keep updated on new episodes coming out. See you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next time.